All right, so as I said, we're uh, continuing this series, Early Acts, and uh, we have been looking at uh, what the original church looked like, how they lived, how they interacted with the world, and what we can learn from that. So this week, we're going to turn to what do we do when we face uh, opposition, and, and, and how did they face opposition, and, and what that can teach us about how we might. Um, in, the, in the eighth grade, I moved from from North Harrison Middle School to Scribner Junior High School. So I moved from Palmyra, Indiana to the booming metropolis of New Albany, Indiana. I'm sure you've heard of it. And uh, so I moved schools and at uh, North Harrison Middle School, I was a starter on the basketball team in seventh grade. And so I tried out for the eighth grade team at Scribner Junior High School. And, uh, and I was ready to, to kind of be a starter again. And I, you know, I loved basketball and Indiana is a big deal. Uh, but I realized very quickly in that tryout that I wasn't as quick or as talented as the other kids that were trying out at this new school. And, uh, and, and that could have led to some level of despair, but it didn't. Don't worry, because I have fortitude and I am I'm a positive thinker. And I thought for sure my stick to and my hard work would lead to me making the team. And so there were three rounds of cuts. There was a, a big cut and I made that first cut. And then there was a second cut that got the team down to 14. And then the final cut would be down to 12, which is brutal. So that means two kids were going to get cut from, like, the, I, people don't understand the psychology of a middle school kid to do something as cruel like that. But anyway, so I was looking on the list to see if I had made the second cut. And it was me and David Valentine were sitting, standing next to each other looking at the list. And I went down and saw my name, and David looked, saw his name. That's the list of 14. And he looks over at me, and he's like, hey, man. Uh, good luck out there because one of us is getting cut tomorrow. And I look back over at him and I'm like, well, pack your bag, son, because I'm not going home. And it was all like Ivan, Ivan Drago, like from Rocky. I was like, I must break you. Like I was cold blooded. Uh, in, I didn't say that out loud, of course, uh, because that would be terrible. But I thought it in my mind and in my heart. Um, uh, I thought he would, could beat me up. So I was like, I didn't say it out loud. But that was it, man. It was cold-blooded. It was like, well, you're going down, man. So, so what do we do? Uh, oh, by the way, we both got cut the next day. This is like a sad end to the story, but that's what happened. Um, we were the last two. Um, and uh, so what do we do when we face opposition? And not like middle school basketball tryout opposition. What do we do when we face something more than that. Today, as we continue to look at this early church, we're going to see how the gospel can turn upside down our view of our circumstances, that our circumstances can actually be, uh, or at least our view of them can be turned upside down. And we're going to do that by looking at how the first church prayed and how they acted, both how they prayed and how they acted. So the question for us is, in light of the gospel, this thing that can turn upside down our view of our circumstances, uh, this gospel that says God meets us where we are, that he tells us the truth about ourselves, and it's not, all, it's not all roses. He tells us the truth about ourselves that we're actually not all right. But then he brings good news into that truth, that there's saving grace available even when we have fallen short, that he brings Christ's sacrifice, the truth of that, in uh, to, to that situation. How do we respond? That's the gospel. So, so how do we respond to that? We should seek community. Yes, we talked about that. We should imitate Christ. Yes, we talked about that. But is there anything else? I believe there is. And I believe the church is showing us here in chapter 4 that we should pray for boldness and we should act with generosity in light of the gospel. A little bit of a backstory if you haven't been with us or maybe it just helps kind of frame where we're going in Acts chapter 4. Back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus, after the resurrection, before the ascension to the Father, says to the followers of Jesus, says to his followers, the disciples, he says, you're going to be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's us, by the way. We are here because his first followers took that call seriously. You'll be my witnesses. But he said, you're not going to be able to do it on your own power. So you actually have to wait for my spirit to come on you. So they do. They wait. They go to an upper room. And then, boom, the spirit comes on them. It shows up. And the gospel unites this incredibly diverse group of people, different backgrounds, colors, uh, languages, cultures that have been in Jerusalem for, for Pentecost. Peter preaches the gospel there. 3,000 people at least become followers of Jesus that day. They form this new thing called the church. Then they commit to each other. Because they could have just been like, cool, got the gospel, I'm out of here. But they commit to each other. They stay together. They commit to God's word, sharing it together, sharing of meals, sharing of prayer. That's the end of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 3 opens with the followers of Jesus moving out of the gathering and into the world, taking the gospel out into the world. And so Peter and John, they go heal this man who was born paraplegic. And he raises to his feet. He'd never walked before. And he raises to his feet. And he's running and he's jumping and he's dancing and he's praising God in the temple. And it says, everyone was amazed. Things were good. But things shift quickly. You have the healing in Acts chapter 3, verse 9. Six verses later, Peter again preaches the gospel because everyone's amazed. And he says, I'm going to give Jesus credit for this healing. That's the only way that it's happening. And the authorities in Jerusalem call in Peter and John and they're like, look, you got to knock off the Jesus stuff. You got to knock off this resurrection talk. It's interestingly, they, they didn't really have uh, any problem with the serving others or the caring for others. It was the giving Jesus credit part. And so they say, look, that's the problem. This giving Jesus credit says you've got to knock it off. And we as the officials, we can put you in jail or do even worse to you. But in the face of that, Peter and John are unrelenting. They say, look, Jesus is where salvation is found. And he's the only place where salvation is found. And this goes on for almost a day. It starts in the afternoon. It goes all the way through the night into the morning. And this back and forth of like, hey, you've got to knock it off. And they're like, we, we can't. This is the truth. We have to tell the truth. And so then after this, after almost a day, they say, look, okay, you can go. We'll let you go. But seriously, like knock off the Jesus talk. And then it says in chapter 4, verse 19, it says, Peter and John uh, together said, which I think is kind of interesting. Maybe they pre-rehearsed it. They were like, the last thing we should say, we should do it in unison. That'll really trip them out. Uh, so they said, they said together, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for you, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Oh, snap. In the face of authority, they're like, we're just going to keep talking about what we know because we've seen it. How could we not talk about it? And so then they leave. The officials let them go. But from here on, for the rest of Acts, there's increased opposition to the message. There's increased hostility. These are less than uh, ideal circumstances from here on out for the church. Some of you are here, you're in less than ideal circumstances, right? Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe, maybe work is not ideal. Maybe, maybe uh, your, your boss is, is a real struggle for you, or maybe the work itself is a real struggle. Maybe your marriage is in no condition like you had ever dream, dreamt of it. It's really difficult. Maybe, maybe your relationship with your kids is strained in ways that you never imagined before. Maybe your finances are just somehow they got upside down and you just you don't even know how it happened, but you're so far behind and it, it does nothing but create anxiety in your life. So if you walked in like that, like how do you respond when the circumstances in your life aren't what you've envisioned? So Peter and John, they go back to the followers after they're released 
And this is where we're going to pick up. But as we do, we should ask this. What, what should we do in the face of opposition? Oppressive opposition. Which is not the same as inconvenience, by the way. And I think that's important to note that, that opposition and, and inconvenience aren't the same thing. Sometimes we can call inconvenience like oppression, like I'm feeling oppressed or, or there's this staunch opposition. But somebody disagreeing with, with kind of what you believe or how, how you believe it, that's not, that's not oppression. That's, that's an inconvenience. And sometimes the, the most Christianly thing that we can do is put the work in and lovingly care for individuals and, and show them the gospel in those situations. But, but sometimes you will face actual opposition, and, and so what do you do in the face of that? There's some options, right? You can yell more loudly, right? If, if someone's opposing your view, you can just yell over top of them, just like, okay, well, I'll, I'll keep raising my volume. Uh, you can return anger for anger, which is similar, right? It's like, fine, you're mad, I'll be mad. We could belittle others, try to like push them down so that it elevates kind of who, who you perceive yourself to be or who other people perceive you to be. Those are options. But if we look at the church in the face of opposition, difficult circumstances, you know what they do? They pray for boldness and they act with generosity. This is where we're going to pick up Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. It's in your bulletin. Uh, you, can, you can follow along there, or if you've got a Bible, you can open that up, Bible app, or you can just listen along. Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So basically they tell them, like, hey, here's what just happened over the last day. When they heard this, look what they did. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Here's the prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This is still the prayer. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to do what? To speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What did they seek the Lord about? When the circumstances weren't good, when they were facing opposition, what did they pray for? That they could speak the word of God boldly. This word boldness, this prayer for, for boldness, interestingly, we get an indication that the prayer was actually answered by God. If you turn to the very end of Acts, Acts chapter 28, verse 31, the last verse of Acts. Here's what it says. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness unhindered. That's the end. That's the end of Acts. Followers of Jesus speaking the word with boldness. The prayer got answered. It's important to note that, that this prayer, the shape of this prayer, it's important it can teach us some things. Because the prayer for boldness goes beyond the circumstances, right? Things were challenging for them. This is not what they had in mind coming off of Pentecost. Remember what it said in Acts chapter 2? They enjoyed the favor of all people. And then the healing, everyone was amazed. So they enjoyed the favor of all people and everyone was amazed. And then they get taken in by the authorities. 
So what they pray? They prayed that they would be able to bring the world the truth of God's unrelenting love. They weren't praying for other people to be quiet. They were praying for other people to hear love. They weren't praying for other people to be quiet. They were praying for other people to hear love. And they recognized that they can't bring the gospel of Jesus without the ongoing work of Jesus. That they, so they prayed, like, let us speak boldly. Let us be the outstretched hand, your outstretched hand, and how we heal and care for others, but only through the spirit that you promised would come. They were well aware that they couldn't do God's work without him. And so they relied on him. They prayed. D.L. Moody once said, I'd rather be able to pray than to be a great preacher. Jesus Christ never taught his disciples how to preach, but only how to pray. I'm struck by how confident this prayer is. And i got to confess to you guys as I've been kind of walking through this, preparing, I don't pray like this. I wish I did, but I don't. But this is a confident prayer. And not so, not so much because the people that were praying were more devout or more holy or more perfect than anyone else. We've talked about that even last week. But there was a confidence in this prayer. Why? Because it was rooted in who God is. That's where it started. It was rooted in what he had done in the past. And it was, uh, rem- they were remembering his provision in the present. Like that, that's, It was rooted in him. And I think if we're not careful... Our prayers, or at least my prayers, I don't necessarily want to project this on you, but my prayers usually fall into two categories. You, you may be similar. Make me famous prayers or uh, make it painless prayers. Make me famous or make it painless. Now, I want to give credit where credit's due. Those two categories in my mind have been developed by listening to Arcade Fire's last album a lot. And so uh, you can listen to it and see if you hear the same things uh, that, I, that I heard. It's not a Christian album, by the way. Uh, if you're like, who's Arcade Fire? They seem like a nice group of guys. Um, but make me famous or, 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 make it, or make it painless. We don't use those words, but we might say, God, please, I just, I wish they would notice me. I wish, I wish I could get approved of, like, I wish they would just give me approval just to tell me I'm okay. Or, God, please give me wisdom on how to get that raise, on how to get noticed, on how to get that position, on how to get that title. God, please show me the direction for that. And if not that, God, give me security. Give me ease. Give me comfortability. Take away the things that are hard. I've had this reoccurring dream lately, uh, which is weird for me. I don't remember my dreams hardly ever, so the fact that I have a reoccurring one might be the first time in my life. But the reoccurring dream is this. I'm in college. I'm back in college, and I have just realized that I have a major project due within hours. And so I'm racing around campus. I went to Ball State University up in Muncie. That's a real place, uh, by the way. Ball State University sounds like a joke. It's real. Um, And I'm racing around campus, and I'm finding my friends. I'm like, did you know about this project? Like, how did you do it? What do you do? How do I, I don't want to get embarrassed. I, I, like, I got to get it done. And so I'm frantic and frantic. And I wake up very anxious, kind of sweaty and anxious. And in the, in the haze between awake and sleep, I notice myself, I've, I've just prayed. And I've been like, God, please take this anxiety away. God, please help me get my work done well. Right? Like, it just, it just like comes out. But the thing is, those prayers, and I know I'm only half awake, right? But those prayers are rooted in me not him. I'm just asking him to make things easier for me. 
I'm not asking for comfort that comes from knowing who he is. I'm like, God, give me something. Give me this so that I can move on. Now, let me be clear here because this is important. I'm not saying you got to get yourself all together and get your prayers kind of in the right order or God's not going to hear them. God hears the cries of his people. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is I'm probably missing out on some comfort that's available to me. And essentially both of those prayers give me recognition status or give me ease and comfort are saying, God, guide me to a place where I don't need you as much. Where I maybe don't have to come back to you so often. God's not anti-being noticed or being loved or or anti-safety. Ultimately, this is what he wants for all people. But he doesn't want to lead us away from him. Away from, from relying on him because he knows that we need him. So look at how the disciples pray. They don't pray, make me famous or make it painless prayers. They prayed to be able to proclaim the gospel boldly. Not their gospel, the gospel. They pray, make him famous, even if it isn't painless. The first five verses, it's a seven verse prayer. The first five verses are about who God is pointing to him, focused on him, remembering how big he is, staying near to him, recognizing that's where we need to be. The prayer starts with proclaiming God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything. And so we prop, they are properly positioning themselves in relation to God. They're putting themselves kind of in the right place in relation to God. Then they turn to the scriptures. They paraphrase Psalm 2. And see God providing in the midst of difficult circumstances. Psalm 2 ultimately points to God dwelling with us as a provision in our circumstances. Then, after that, after they've put themselves kind of in the right place, then they turn to their present circumstances. Because their present circumstances could be rightly positioned relative to God. The one who created all things. The one who brings salvation into the world. And so their prayer isn't, Lord, please cause those that hurt us, cause them to hurt. It's not even, please stop them from hurting us. It's not a prayer of, of God, if, if you were good, you'd take these circumstances away. You'd make things easier. Here's what the prayer is. God, let us go on speaking boldly the truth of your love for the sake of others, even if it costs us something. And will you continue to work powerfully through us? Give us that gift. Their struggle sent them running to God, not away from him. To ours? So if you're here today and you're you're struggling, my encouragement, turn to him. Pray. If you're unsure, turn to him. Pray. If you're hurting, turn to him. Pray. If you're facing opposition, pray. Not that they go away but that you can be bold in love. And that he'll move powerfully in either your circumstances or in your heart, but it's his choice. Give him that space to work powerfully in your heart or in your circumstances, but it's his choice. These early followers of Jesus, this first church, they trusted that God wasn't done, that Jesus wasn't finished even if their circumstances didn't change, God would continue to work. Jesus would continue to do more. So their view of their circumstances was turned upside down by the gospel about a God who's going to set this world right. 
through his sacrifice. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they met was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Here we go, the Spirit again. We've seen this multiple times in the first four chapters of Acts. God working in this supernatural way to empower and to guide and to equip his people. We've seen it again and again. And this is just a bit of a side note, but I think it's an important one. You may wonder at this point, especially if you've been following along, if you've been here all four weeks, or if you've read the first four chapters of Acts in one sitting, you may have this sense of like, where's mine? Like I've, like I've seen this over and over again, God, where your spirit moves in these miraculous ways. We may feel like the kid in this picture, right? The title of this picture is A Few Seconds Before Happiness. Maybe, maybe we've begged and we've begged for God to show up, to move in powerful ways in our marriage, and it seems like nothing. We're in that relationship, it seems like nothing. Or in that circumstance, and it seems like no, nothing. We, we've said, God, will you please take away the loneliness? God, will you please give us a glimpse of how you're going to redeem this pain that I'm feeling? God, will you please give me a glimpse of this thing that you're calling it? Like, where are you guiding me? Where am I supposed to go? It seems like everybody else is experiencing the goodness of, of, of who you are, and I'm left on the sidelines. And you're wondering, God, where's mine? The followers of Jesus, they didn't choose the time. They did, however, choose to not give up on God. It might be moments away. The change in the circumstance or the change in your heart might be moments away. Don't give up on God. God always answers prayers like this. He's bold. God, will you give me boldness? He always answers prayers like this by shaking us, by changing us, by, 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 by moving us, rattling us. But the thing is, the more God shakes us, the less the world can. And so these first followers, they prayed, God, would you do big things and answer, answer that prayer? Like, do, do wondrous signs. And the answer to the prayer showed up in a really surprising place. They prayed for boldness, to proclaim the, the word of God boldly in the face of opposition. And part of the answer came in them. They became part of the answer. The community became part of the answer in how they lived for each other. The gospel turned them upside down. God met them where they were. He told them the truth about themselves, that things aren't all right, but don't worry because uh, Jesus on the cross set things right, brought good news into that truth. Jesus paid the price so that we could be back with God and his victory over the grave means we get to share in that victory as well. And with that good news, they responded to live lives that were beautiful and free and generous. Look at verse 32. This is what happens after the prayer. The prayer, God use us boldly. The Spirit shows up. Here's the very next thing that happens. All the believers were one in heart and mind, unity. No one claimed any of their possessions uh, was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerful at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. 
Now, if you, if you, again, if you've been reading along in Acts, you may be like, that sounds like, de- that's like deja vu. Didn't Luke just say this? Yeah, he actually did. Two chapters ago, right after the church is formed, after Pentecost, after 3,000 become followers of Jesus, it says they were together. And they had everything in common. They sold property and gave it to those in need. That's what he just said two chapters ago. So why is he repeating himself? Or maybe the better question is this. Is he giving us any more information now? Actually, he is. In verse 34, we get this little little phrase. We can blow right over it, but it's important. It says, there was no needy persons among them. Why is that important? Well, this is a group of people that were living in response to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And they were trying to display God's character, be be generous and and loving with his character. and, And they were trying to live the truth of his promises. You know what one of the most important promises of God is? It goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 15, way back in the Old Testament. But it's important we go there for a second. In Deuteronomy 15, it's a call to God's display people, Israel. And it says every seven years there's going to be a jubilee. You need to wipe out debt so that no one kind of has any claim over anyone else and be generous in that way every seven years. And then it says this in verse 4. There will be no needy person among you because the Lord will be sure to bless you. So these people, the first church, recognized in their deepest need, their spiritual need, their core need, that that God was generous with them and gave them provision of Jesus. And they were living as God's display people now, the practical implications of that in community. These people were living with an eye on displaying God's character and living in response to the grace and forgiveness of the cross. And so they took risks. They pray for boldness and they act with generosity. And this isn't natural. We know this. To sell your possessions, just give to people, that's not a natural thing to do. You wouldn't see somebody at Publix and be like, hey, uh, you, want the, you want my car keys? Your, your car isn't as nice as mine. Just take my car. This isn't a natural thing. to. I'm not advising that, by the way. But they gave sacrificially. And they cared for others. That's in a supernatural way. But remember, Jesus said this is going to happen. He says, you're not going to be able to do what I'm asking you to do without me, without the spirit that I'm promising. We need him to reflect him. Even in how we view our things and our resources. So our view of our circumstance can be turned upside down by the gospel, but our view of our things can as well. And so it was the boldness of God's unconditional love when they saw the gospel clearly that led them to be bold in generosity, no matter the circumstances. And it should be that way with us as well. We're still the church. That statement being one heart and and mind, it shows up a few other times in the New Testament. It shows up in Philippians 2. It shows up in Ephesians 4. And we know from the scripture that being one heart and mind, we know what it doesn't mean and we know what it does mean. It doesn't mean agreeing on all things that could be disputed but it does certainly mean being ready to regard others' needs as your own. It doesn't mean agreeing on everything that could possibly be disputed, but it does certainly mean being ready to view others' needs as our own. It's being generous to the spiritual and emotional and physical needs of others. See, this first church, this one we're looking at to see if it can guide us was full of people who confidently prayed to God that they would boldly speak love and boldly live love in light of the gospel, but also in a testimony to the truth of the gospel. 
Because when we see the gospel rightly, when we see God's generosity inviting us to himself for eternity, we can start to see our money, our stuff, the things. We can see those aren't going to last, but God's love is. And so if we get the gospel, it clicks like it did for these first followers. Money, the stuff, that's temporary, but it can be leveraged for eternity. And so when the gospel turns your view upside down, you start to go, you know what, this, this, uh, this thinking that says, like, I earned it and I deserve it and I should keep it because I got to look out for number, number one because no one else is going to look out for number one. That can absolutely give way to a question of, like, what can be accomplished in making Jesus known, bold proclamation through this stuff. It's freeing. I've noticed um, as you get older, or at least for me, as I get older, um, I don't heal as easily as I used to when I was younger. Um, I'm going to be 40 this year, and I know for some of you, you're looking at me and you're like, this guy's not even old enough to be trustworthy. But I'm going to be 40 this year, uh, and I've noticed when I was younger, you do all kinds of crazy things. Like when I was in high school and college, if my friends would have been like, hey, we have an idea. We're going to play basketball for three hours, and then we're going to go to the gym uh, and lift as much weight as we possibly can without having our, like, spleen bust out of our side, and then we're going to run a marathon, and then we're going to eat five pizzas. You in? I'm like, yeah, I'm in. Uh, Right? Like, you just jump at these chances. Like, hey, see that trampoline? See that pool? We're going to bring them together. Backflip off the trampoline into the pool, and I'm like, I'm there. Right? Uh, And if you hurt yourself, it's not that big of a deal because you heal like Wolverine when you're younger. And so you're like, oh, wasn't your arm broken yesterday? Yep. Fine now, though. Let's do the trampoline thing again. I think I can get it this time. Um, so that's when you're younger. But as you get older, it's, it takes longer to, to heal. And so you don't take as, as many risks. And there's probably some wisdom in pulling back physically as, as you get older. I'm starting to, to realize. But there is no wisdom in as we get older as a church pulling back and taking less risks spiritually. God's still calling us to be his witness and doing so will take spiritual risks. Some it isn't finished because God isn't finished. We still have work to do, and we should still have open hands, and we should still risk. And thankfully, we don't have to go it alone. We get to have our. We have to have each other. We have each other uh, to 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 be in this with us, and we have a spirit. Right now, as a church, things are going well. Next week, we'll be 17 years old as a church. Next week, next week is Vision Sunday. Be here for that. It's like a birthday celebration, uh, but mostly just exactly like church. Um, and, uh, but we're going to be excited about that. Um, and we're 10 years old as a campus in January. And we're making budget, and we're doing ministry, and we're engaging on Sunday, and engaging throughout the week, and connecting Christ-centered relationships in our Summit Connect groups in ways that are stable and positive. We're experiencing high levels of stability as a church. And I believe God's stacking the deck for us. I believe God's on the verge of calling us to to some big things that are going to take boldness and courage. And I believe this because I've seen God for as long as I've been at Summit take these seasons of stability and use them as kinetic energy to push us out toward great uh, impact for Christ in the world. At Summit, seasons of stability have usually led to seasons of mission. That's because God isn't finished. Remember what Acts is? Luke tells us, 
It's what Jesus continues to do and teach even after the resurrection and even after his ascension. Jesus is just getting started. He's got more to accomplish, more miracles, more transformed lives, more go, more of everything he started. What's in the Bible, what's in this is just the beginning and you're part of the rest of the story. Are you living like part of the answer to the apostles' prayer? Are you being bold in proclaiming who Jesus is with your words and with your life? Because we're supposed to. And the challenge for all of us is in a world that screams, look out for number one, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. The challenge is is, that giving, is believing that giving the best of what we have to the best of God's intention to be open-handed with the temporary things he has blessed us with, our time and our talent, our resources, is something worth the risk. So here's my encouragement as we turn to the practical. Like, what do we do with this? How do we live in an echo to this Acts chapter 4, first church? Here's my encouragement. Jump in. Create space in your life to pray for boldness and act with generosity. It'll include your time, it'll include your talent, it'll include your resources, all things that we can hold on to too tightly if we're not careful. My encouragement, take time to create a rhythm of remembering who God is and asking Him to invite you in to what He's doing in this world. Invite, to, invite Him to change you and into speaking in a way and living in a way that lines up with who he is. And that'll almost certainly lead you towards seeing the needs of others and showing love and compassion. Look, we have a great opportunity. There are people who are anxious right now. There are people in our own neighborhood. Knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, you good? You ready for the storm? Start there. Don't forget our, the people in the Bahamas. They're going through it right now. And when the storm passes through, they're going to be left with the wreckage, right? It should move us toward love and compassion. It's not just the storm. It's, it's everyday life. I recently heard of someone at Summit who found out that another person uh, at Summit was having work visa issues, which means he can't work right now and, and can't, can't make an income. And so instead of saying, oh, that's too bad, or man, that's a system that I don't like, or what, any way you could respond, she took a risk. She reached out to him and said, hey, can I help you in the short term? Like until it gets all figured out, let me know. I'd really like to help. She gave up some comfort and she took a risk to be generous. We tell our kids every day when they get on the bus to go to school, I love you. That's number one. Number two, choose kindness. Be generous with your words and how you care for others. That's a success. Know that I love you and choose kindness. You do that today, we, we did a good job. And part of that will include moving toward giving that lines up with the heart of God and the mission of God. So I'm encouraging you to like pray for wisdom in that, like how you're giving, how, how your resources, your stuff can, can line up with the heart of God. Pray for wisdom, but don't wait. Be generous like it matters in this life and the next because it does. 
and part of how that's been done by God's people, part of the framework for that for, for, for as long as God's people exist is through the tithe. And I know we talked about that earlier, but let me give you just a little bit of a kind of different framework for that. Tithe is a word that means tenth. It's just, that's exactly what it means. Tenth, tithe, same word. We first see it in uh, Adam's son Abel giving his first fruits over to God. We see it in Genesis 28 where Jacob says, uh, a tenth of all that I have I give to you, God. We see the tithe formalized throughout the Old Testament, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as a, as a marker of how the people of God can be generous to the work of God. Right? And so you may be, uh, somebody's looking up Genesis 28. That's great. Uh, so you may, uh, you may think, okay, cool. Like, I got that. Uh, but, hey, preacher man, I got the, got the trump card here. Uh, that's Old Testament stuff. And when Jesus came, he said we were living under a new covenant. And so that old tithe stuff isn't what I have to live under anymore. And you're exactly right. But Jesus never lowers the bar of faithfulness. And love will always take you further than law ever will. And so we'll start there. So 10% is a, it's a good marker. It's a good marker to get started on. But let me just say this because this is so important. What God is up to has almost nothing to do with math. A tithe isn't what God wants to get out of you. It's what he wants to invite you into. And if you don't trust Summit, if you're like, look, man, this is just a pitch to, to you know, kind of get something new. If you don't trust Summit, that's okay. Give somewhere. Don't give here. That's, that's okay. God doesn't want your stuff. If you want your stuff, he'd take it. He's God. He wants your heart. He wants to invite you in. He wants you to be freed up for generosity. So here's the deal. Part of how God answered the prayer that they would proclaim the gospel boldly came in how they lived generously for each other, and the world noticed. It could be the same for us. I know for some of you, this number 10%, 10% of your income going to, to God's work, it seems like a ridiculous dream. You've been out of work or you're struggling. Maybe you're unemployed or underemployed and you need help. Ask, please. It's a huge part of why we exist. Your next right step might be letting us be family. And some of you have, and I'm so thankful for that. For some, you think, man, I would love to get swept up in this. I would. Like, it sounds so good. I would love to, to pray for boldness, and I would love to be generous, just recklessly generous. I'm so in, but, man, my, my economic outlook, my finances, they're so upside down. I'm just coming to this, and I've made some really bad decisions. It's okay. Start from where you are. God meets you where you are. Remember, that's the start of the gospel. Be a part of FPU, Financial Peace University. It's in your bulletin. Get in that class. Move uh, toward creating space so that you can be generous. Get, move to being freed up. And yet the reality is there's many of us that, that have the ability to be generous with our resources in, in part for those who can't be. But this is a new concept or, or maybe it's like, I don't know, man. I, I've just never really kind of stepped in to this. My encouragement, take a step. Take a step of trust. M move a percent and then a percent, a percent, a percent, a little bit in that direction. Move toward giving to the things God cares about and being swept up in it and being excited about how generous you can be in joining God in what he's doing. Because in the face of opposition, the first church, they didn't yell more loudly. They didn't pray God eliminate those that oppose us or God silence them so that we could be heard. They didn't hold on too tightly to the things that they had. They said, God, give us boldness. 
so we can continue to preach the good news because people need to know how much they're loved by you. And then they acted generously with each other as a display that that very good news is true. The gospel turned them upside down in love. And so they went on living generously in a way that turned the world upside down in love. I want to close with this. A lot of you might be familiar with the book, the, the uh, 8th century B.C. epic, The Odyssey. Um, I was supposed to read it in high school. My son is a freshman. He's supposed to read it this year. I hope he does better than me because I didn't read it at all. And I'm hoping that he does. Uh, but uh, this, if you're familiar with it, the Odyssey is essentially uh, an, an ancient tale of temptation. And the theme of temptation reaches its height at book 12. It's a long epic. And so if you, you like take small chunks, right? Uh, start with book 12 if you want to. But that's where this theme of temptation comes to its pinnacle. In this book, book 12, you have Odysseus, who's the hero of the story, and he sails past the sirens. Some of you maybe have heard uh, this part of the story. These are half women, half birds that sing this beautiful song uh, out at sea, and as sailors are going by, they sing this song, and it's so attractive, they steer their ships toward the song, and there are these rocks, and, and basically the ships get destroyed and the crews get, uh, get lost along the way. And so Odysseus has this... Uh, idea. He says, I want to hear the siren song. I want to hear this beautiful song, but I also don't want to wreck my ship. And so he says to the crew, tie me to the mast so that I can hear the song, tie me really tight, and then you plug your ears with wax. And so you won't hear it. You can guide us away from the siren's call. And so they do that, and, and Odysseus is tied up, and he hears the song, and it drives him crazy. And he threatens to rip the boat apart and, and, and uh, kind of push everybody overboard. I mean, it's a real tense moment, but they do narrowly escape. Uh, and Odysseus gets to hear the song and they narrowly escape. But there was another boat that came by that had a different strategy altogether. This other boat, uh, when they heard the sirens begin to sing, Orpheus pulls out a lyre, which is essentially a small harp, and plays a song that is more beautiful than the song of the sirens. And their ship goes by unswayed and unharmed. As we're looking at the first church and trying to draw how we can live from it, we can see that God is not inviting us to clench our fists and white-knuckle it through life. We're not supposed to live clenching tightly to what we have and pushing aside the bad things and the bad people in the face of opposition. He's inviting us to fall in love with a song that's better than any other song and a story better than any other story. In the face of opposition and challenge, it's not just being anti the bad. It's about being pro-living fully what we have been made to. So what song are you listening to? What story are you joining? Let's be people who pray for boldness and let's act with generosity, even if it costs us something, as a display of the truth of the gospel. And remember what Jesus said. He said, you're not going to be able to do it without me. So as we pursue this, we have to stay tethered to him. And so let's go to him in prayer now as we pursue being the church we're called to be. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we come to you and we want to, um, because we're not maybe as intuitive as we would like to be, I, I want to just start by, by mirroring the prayer of this first church. God, you made the heavens 
and the earth and the seas, though they rage, and us, and you made those that, God, you have given us to love. God, we want to be bold in pointing people to you and your good news for the world. We want to live lives that display the truth of your love. And we ask you, God, because we know we can't do it without your power. We can't reflect you without you. We ask that you do powerful things in and through us for your glory, not for ours. I pray, God, that you would change our hearts if we find ourselves in a place of despair, if not our circumstances that have led us there. I pray that we would be bold in our prayers. I pray that we would be courageous as people. I pray that we would be generous in our actions. And we need you to do it, God. So guide us through that process. In Jesus' name, amen.